just sit together and I kind of reflect, well, what are we doing here? (laughs) You know, because it is kind of strange to have everybody come in the room and just sit quietly and not relate to one another and didn't even want name tags, right? (laughs) Somebody came up during the break who was very compassionately concerned about the person who made that suggestion that they would feel really bad, but that person's okay, and also they're not here, so it's all right. (laughs) (sighs) So, I want to kind of reflect tonight um, really about the place of meditation or of coming to sit together or coming to um, a meditation center or a temple. Um, I was going to start with this passage from Thoreau about his sitting in the sunny doorway wrapped amidst the pines and sumacs and histories and, and hickories and bird songs and so forth where he says that sitting like this was far better than any work of the hands that could have been. Um, It was not time subtracted from my life, but so much over and above my usual allowance. I felt so alive in doing nothing. Um, And then I got this poem in the mail. It actually came from KPFA, a Naomi Nye poem um, that says it in a different language. The Arabs used to say, when a stranger appears at your door, feed him for three days before asking who he is, where he's come from, where he's headed. That way he'll have strength enough to answer, or by then you'll be such good friends you don't care. Let's go back to that. Rice, pine nuts. Here, take the red brocade pillow. My child will serve water to your horse. No, I was not busy when you came. I was not preparing to be busy. That's the armor everyone put on to pretend they had a purpose in the world. I refuse to be claimed by this. Your plate is waiting full of refreshment. We will snip fresh mint into your tea. So it's really a poem of welcome and what an amazing custom. It was and is perhaps still in the more remote areas. The Tradition, when a stranger appears, you feed them for three days before asking who they are, where they come from. What a way to meet someone, to take that time. No, I wasn't busy. Can I give you a place to sit? Would you like your drink warm or cool? And then there's no kind of check at the end that, you know, the waiter brings. One of the good things about Thanksgiving, I hope you had good Thanksgiving, um, is that it's, as, as has been said a lot, it's one of the rare holidays that we had that doesn't have greeting cards and kind of consumer commercial uh, accoutrements. It's just time to sit down and eat and be together um, in its simplest form. And we need that. We need it so desperately um, in modern life. And one of the most visible and painful characteristics of modern technological society is the absence of the sacred in all different forms. Um, Virginia Woolf, who uh, writes, let's see if I can find you, Virginia. If people are highly successful in their professions, they lose their senses. Sight goes. They have no time to look at pictures of the countryside. Sound goes. They haven't time to listen to music. Speech goes. They have no time for leisurely conversation. They lose their sense of proportion. Their humanity goes with their success. A little bit of an indictment, one might say. But there are grave consequences for technological society, which we know about ecological destruction and destruction of species and um, medicine that at its worst um, doesn't really pay attention in the proper way to birth or death in a sacred way. 
uh, or medicine without a healing spirit at times, or the commodification of everything to this extent where even our children are being commodified as a market. Um, or when we're not in touch, we get into foolish wars. Um, and our prisons, which now have become the largest institutionalized mental hospitals in the country, all the people that, are, that were in the mental hospitals that were closed, many of them are now in our prisons. Um, if you can imagine, you know, already the suffering of somebody who would be previously have been placed in a mental hospital for that kind of disturbance, having to be in a prison, what that's like. I mean, the fact, beside the fact that they're poverty prisons anyway, for the most part, or the poisonous quality of racism that is fostered in modern society. Um, anybody have a computer and have more time since you got your computer than before you got it? <laughs> Raise your hand. One hand in the back. Congratulations. There was this cartoon in the New Yorker of this man and this woman walking along, kind of well-heeled and very busy down a street in Manhattan, it looked like, and one saying to the other, someday I want to be rich enough to get rid of everything and live like a monk, right? (laughs) (laughs) And now we're entering the so-called holiday season, which has mostly become the shopping season, except for you know a few little holiday, other things that happen. And the question for us is, how do we keep the sacred alive? The Sabbath, the, the time of connection to something deep and beautiful that's there in us, but gets lost. When I've traveled and lived, the good fortune to live in village cultures in Asia and Indonesia and Thailand, Laos, or down in Central America and so forth. As everybody knows, there's a kind of rhythm to indigenous life and village life, but all that too is changing. In the places that I've been in recent years, there's this furious modernization that's going on, cell phones and new roads and factories and so forth. I remember going to this beautiful temple in Indonesia and I thought I'd come across this great sacred ceremony because from a distance you could see inside the temple all these people they would look like they were doing some kind of bowing and there was some sound coming out but I couldn't tell what it was and I was really excited to get to go in and see what was going on and I got up to the temple and as I got closer I discovered they were doing aerobics right (laughs) (laughs) ah yes But not all is lost. Um, The driver that we had for that particular visit and period of time when I was living in Bali the last time um, had gotten a brand new um, car to, you know, drive people around. And um, every time he came to uh, an intersection or a crossroad, he would honk his horn quite loud, um, which, of course, is just the way one drives. I think you need an engine and a horn, basically, for any kind of transportation in much of India and Southeast Asia. Um, but um, I asked him at one point, going along, and I said, you know, are you honking the horn because it's a new car and there's other car and you want to protect, you know, your investment? And you know how it is with new cars and all that. And he said, oh, no, no, not at all. I said, no. He said, no, I sound the horn to uh, let the gods know I am coming to the intersection. <laughs> so that they might protect me and everyone else and I can pass through safely. And I thought, okay, this is still Bali, you know. It was lovely. Don't, I don't get that spirit out on 101, not the same. <laughs> but there is, I mean, in, in Bali, people still spend 25% of their time involved in ritual, in dance, in, in music, in art, in the sacred rituals of the village. Um, and I remember being, again, in a temple in a part of Thailand, a city, actually, that had really grown up since I'd first gone there almost 40 years ago. 
and I was wandering around looking at the markets and the mall and the various things like that and came across this big old Bodhi tree that must have been planted in the courtyard of some temple or something that was gone. Um, and it was right in the middle of all these shops and the roofs and the walls of the shops had been kind of architecturally designed to make sure that the Bodhi tree had enough room to grow. So you could, you know, get your nails done, but there was the Bodhi tree. Or <laughs> you could buy, you know, camera goods or computer or whatever, but there was the Bodhi tree. And I looked, and it was well tended. At the base was this little shrine, and you could tell that that very morning people had come out, probably the people who were on the shops, and done their prayers and put their incense in and, and done their little meditation and so forth. And it was beautiful to me in some way. It was the symbol of the sacred tree that is always in our midst, even if we seem to have forgotten it. As Black Elk, the visionary medicine man, says, nourish the root of this sacred tree, that it may leaf and bloom and fill with singing birds. And in his vision he saw the one great tree of life which holds, which upholds every part of life in the center of the world, wide as daylight and as starlight, sheltering all the children of the great spirit. So this image of the tree, even in the middle of the marketplace and the busy street going by, for me, it was something so important as a kind of a symbol of a way of being, a trust, a presence. That if we're to be genuinely alive as human beings and not just mechanical, we each need to stay connected with, inspired by, find our way, find our tree. Because what is it that we trust? Development? You know, money? Homeland security? All right, you don't have to laugh, it's all right. It's so interesting, at some of the teacher meetings that we've had over the years, I remember being in a meeting with the Dalai Lama and various Buddhist teachers from around the world in Dharamsala, kind of talking shop, I guess is what we were doing, you know, a trade meeting of some kind. Anyway, <laughs> talking about our Buddhist centers and all of this. And, and there was a kind of a question to the Dalai Lama about how best the teachings of the Dharma could be spread in the West. And he shook his head, he and some of the other great old lamas with him said, we can't tell you this. We must trust you. We entrust you with the Dharma. We trust you. You must find your way. And that is true for each of us. I mean, friends who come up, who I love dearly, who are in the midst of a difficult divorce, or someone who comes and says, tells me about his cancer, or someone else who's just having to take their parent and who has Alzheimer's and put them in some kind of assisted living, or someone struggle with their children or changing their life and so forth. How do I navigate this? How do I negotiate this? And the most important thing many of these teachers said when we talked about what was the essence of the teaching was somehow to communicate a spirit of faith and trust in the heart itself, in the goodness of your own humanity, O nobly born in your true nature. And what is really trustworthy in this world of praise and blame and gain and loss and pleasure and pain? I don't see spiritual practice so much as the imposition of some new set of beliefs or some particular religion that one should have, but rather of the opening again of the heart and the mind and the eyes to the mystery of the life that we've been given. As one writer says, I would rather live in a world where my life is surrounded by mystery than live in a world so small that my thinking mind could imagine it understands it all. <laughs> When people come on retreat, even for a day-long retreat here, certainly for the residential retreats we do, um, one of the practices that um, we 
teach regularly is walking meditation. Probably a lot of you have done it. And there's a particularly beautiful thing to see after a number of days of retreat, it becomes really visible as people start to get quieted down in their bodies and more present. And then they go out to walk. It looks like they get younger. And people actually report it. They come in and they say, you know, I was out doing my walking meditation, just placing my feet on the earth and the sun was shining there or the wind was coming this way and maybe there were some deer as there often are out there. And all of a sudden I felt like I was two years old again. I was a year and a half. You know, I could feel what it was like just to take the pleasure of putting my foot down on the ground. Just the pleasure of being on this earth in this mysterious life again. You know, I mean, I love that stage of walking. I call it kind of the drunken sailor stage or the toddlers, you know, of a year and a half or so when they're just learning to walk around. And you can watch people doing their walking meditation. It's this whole field of big toddlers kind of walking around. And, wow, look at that. But with that sense of mystery, there also comes a, a kind of a grace. I remember a few retreats ago, a woman who came sitting, and she was estranged from her only child, from her daughter, and her two grandchildren, who she almost never saw. There was a lot of conflict. There'd been a lot of trouble in growing up and being a single parent and so forth. And this woman herself had been depressed a lot and different times tried medications as well as meditation and whatever else she could do to, you know, to help herself. And she was sitting there and as she sat and really let herself be present, a tremendous amount of grief came. Waves of different emotions. Anger at times for the estrangement. Her daughter wouldn't talk to her. and The loss and then underneath it the grief and the fear and her own aging. And as she sat, somehow her mind got a little bit quieter. All the feelings that had scared her came up. All the things that were in the closet that frightened her. But she made enough of a space of compassion that she could sit with it all. Not be quite so frightened, not so resistant, not so afraid of all this stuff. She wept. And, and as the compassion grew for how much <coughs> she had lost in, with her daughter and the family and how lost everybody was around her when she grew up, she began to feel a kind of tenderness for everybody and a longing for it to be different. And then she said, she, she wrote me this note, she accepted it too, she said, she will never be exactly the daughter I imagined. And I will never be exactly the mother she wanted. And that's how it is. But I felt a growing forgiveness coming for us all. I do not want grief and estrangement to be the legacy for my daughter and my grandchildren. I will not do that. And she left the retreat. Her mind was quieter. Her heart was more open. And she went back to connect with the family that she needed to love in a new way. And I think that this question of what really matters or what's trustworthy for us gets answered more than anything else by the simplicity of just stopping, listening to the sacred rhythms of life, to something that's so mysterious that we're born into a human body with its, all its changing emotions and thoughts and this community of people that we're a part of, family and friends and society. And the kind of faith that comes as hers deepened over the retreat is not a blind faith. You're supposed to believe in something kind of unexamined. Someone said they were looking for a cure for blind faith in the world. Um, or even the tentative faith that you've heard it and it sounds right, this is the way things are. But it's what's called a verified faith, uh, an inner knowing that we can be with the sorrows and the joys that are given to us, with the measure of sorrows of our life and the beauty of the world, and keep our heart open anyway. And really, what else matters? And it's so kind of mysterious. I haven't read for a while these letters from 
kids' children's letters to God, but they kind of express it so well. Dear God, I'll bet it's very hard to love all of everybody in the world. There are only four people in my family, and I can never do it. <laughs> Mike. <laughs> or, Dear God, did you mean for giraffe to be that way, or was it a mistake? Right? <laughs> And then the kind of more profound ones, dear God, instead of having people die and having to make new ones all the time, why don't you just keep the ones you got now? <laughs> you know? Or, dear God, if you come to church on Sunday, I'll show you my new red shoes, Lisa, right? Dear God, are boys better than girls? I know you are one, but try to be fair. <laughs> Dear God, what happens when you die? I don't want to do it, I just want to know. Yours, Stacy. I mean, it is so mysterious to be in these bodies, to be born out of someone else's body and grow in the way that we do from a little baby into this larger adult body and lumber around and feed it, you know, and stuff. It is the, the animal body. It's so mysterious. And I remember, maybe I mentioned this when I was over in Berkeley some weeks ago to hear Al Gore speak and do his, this quite compelling lecture on the global environmental situation. And the most, he had incredible visuals that NASA provided for him, some of which were really quite alarming, the shrinking of the um, ice caps and the poles and so forth, or this picture of a nuclear submarine coming up through the ice at the North Pole um, in 1952 and breaking through eight feet of polar ice, and then a picture of the nuclear submarine, you know, last year coming up the pole, and the ice is only two feet thick now. Um, but the most amazing, astonishing picture was the one that was made by the Voyager satellite. Um, which, after it passed Saturn and Jupiter and was headed out to the far reaches of the solar system, partway out there, instructions were sent to turn back once more and turn its camera to the planet Earth, which had, could be seen as this little round globe, just one little spot there, but illuminated at that particular time quite clearly by the sunlight, and to snap a picture every 15 minutes for 24 hours, kind of like time-lapse photography. So there on the screen was the picture, took about half a minute or so to show, and you could see this planet hanging way, way out there in the solar system, making one turn day and night, just this beautiful turning blue-green globe that was tiny out in the distance, in which is everything that we know. And here we are on this. So what do we do with this? I and mean, what really matters to us? It's why we come to sit and meditate together, or why one comes to the temple, to begin to quiet the mind, open the heart, look again, look anew at the mystery of life, and listen. Because... Um, we don't actually have that much control about what happens to us. You think you're running the show. You can make certain choices. But the big ones really just happen to you, don't they? I mean, if you look. And so what do we do with this, this mystery? Um, I remember hearing Ramdas talk about all the different phases of his life, you know, the Harvard professor and the LSD guru and the you know, um, builder of hospitals around the world, the servant, and now he said, now I'm just the old man in the wheelchair with the stroke. He said, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't take away anything. I wouldn't take away any part of it, not even the stroke, not even the loss of movement and language. He said, everything is taught me, and my guru used to say that your suffering is what brings you closest to God. So maybe this is just heavy grace. A friend and a wonderful scientist in England that I've talked about on occasion here, Rupert Sheldrake, who was at Cambridge University 
um, develop the theory of morphic resonance, of the, the consciousness that we share on the earth, which is very much the Buddhist understanding of it. And one of the beautiful things that Rupert's done is to create a, a series of different experiments as a biologist to help understand the connection of consciousness. He published a book and did a show on, in England, BBC, called Seven Experiments You Can Perform at Home That Could Change the World. Um, and, you know, one had to do with homing pigeons, and another one was this wonderful experiment I like to talk about, about um, dogs who know when their owners are going to come home. Because you've all heard these stories, right? And the simple thing they did on the BBC was to take video cameras to these people who said, yes, my dog, the dog always knows, and put a video camera at work where the person is, and then put another video camera in the living room or wherever, the hearth where the dog is, but not have the person come at their regular time and said the person's there working, and all of a sudden the phone rings, pick up, hi, this is BBC, now it's time for you to go home for, 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 from work. So whenever the phone rang, it was kind of random, the person there at work would pack up their bag and put on their coat and so forth, and it's split screen, you'd be watching, <laughs> watching the dog, and as the person got up to pack their bag up and put their coat on, you'd see the dog put its head up, <laughs> kind of look around, wag its tail a little bit, walk over to the door and sit back down and start waiting for the person to come home. It was fantastic. So why does that happen, right? Or the experiment where um, they had um, a group of people sit in the back of a room and, and pick someone that they were going to stare at, you know, and just stare at that person, and then turn the camera on, and you begin to notice that, that after a while, people would start to turn around and look <laughs> three times more often than anybody else. So, so simple. Um, what is this? consciousness that experiences the words and sights and sounds. This is part of the mystery, and nobody has a kind of Western scientific understanding of consciousness. But it is what we are. And if you look into the eyes of a newborn, they open their eyes and they look around and say, wow, what, what a planet, look at this, you know. What I, who are you? You look into those eyes that were just born, and they're really your eyes. They're the eyes of this consciousness that connects with and brings forth all of life, this knowing. And when we remember this mystery, when we remember who we are, we are, as it said, not human beings having a spiritual experience, but spiritual beings having a human experience. And when we have a kind of perspective of this mystery, everything becomes more workable. Our lessons, our homework, if you will, the measure of sorrows that we're given, the challenges that we each have, but also the beauty, the preciousness of each day that will never be repeated. You know, this sunny and cold, it was really frosty in Woodacre this morning, and yet it was kind of also bright, and there were the leaves on the ground that made it look a little bit like New England under certain trees. You know, um, kind of remarkable. And we start to see that nothing is repeated. That this day is only here once. And feel a connectedness in life and to all things. It's as if the values of the heart get reawakened, reemerge from the quieting of the mind, the opening of the heart. So simple. Spirit Rock has really been developed here in the ancient tradition of the forest monasteries. When we first thought about building a meditation center here, got this beautiful piece of land, this valley, there were different images that people had, one of which was like the um, mission kind of monastery or, or sacred space in which you would have a courtyard and all of the buildings around one great courtyard, which is a beautiful kind of architecture. But we realized that what would make sense, especially for the residential retreat, was to keep it more like the forest temples and monasteries, where you had a place where you slept and a place where you went to sit and meditate or take teachings and another place where you had your meals. 
and you had to walk outside among the trees and in the in the grasses and out in under the stars and one of the beautiful things on retreat is to do that even if it's raining or it's cold you get quiet and you start to move through the space of this environment and it becomes alive in a different way just to walk out at night when it's a little bit frosty after the Dharma teaching and go back to where you're sleeping. We don't get to do that very much. We're in our cars and we get to our offices and so forth. Or you go out purposefully for your walk once a day or something like that. But there is this spirit, and that's the kind of outer form. The inner is that this be a place that reminds you, you there. There used to be a sign when it came into Ajahn Chah, my teacher's monastery. It said, you there, life is short. It's slow down. <laughs> How's that? Life is short, slow down. <sighs> There's a kind of graciousness that's possible when we remember this mystery, even in the midst of suffering. There are three essential or simple principles that Buddhist teaching offers or trainings you could call them that are a part of the creation of sacred space, a part of the creation of, of the a, a field of awakening in the temple. Um, the first of these is the changing or the steadying or the expression of our heart's intention, a kind of reaffirmation of our nobility, to act well, to act out of compassion in this world, no matter what happens. Or as it says in the Bhagavad Gita, to act well without attachment to the fruits of the actions. So the Dalai Lama gets up every morning and says, for as long as eternity and as long as living beings exist anywhere, may I be the boat to cross over the turbulent waters of the world for them. May I be the shelter in the storm for beings. May I be the medicine to cure all ills. For as long as eternity, I will return to offer this as best as I can. Now that's a serious vow to take as an intention. But in our own way, if we listen, we can each find a sacred intention in our, in our hearts. What is it that's the, the kind of rudder that steers your boat down the stream of life? What is the direction that you would choose? And the direction in the temple is the ground of respect and care and compassion, compassionate in words and deeds. I mean, it's really simple. You don't steal in the temple, right? You don't steal from your family. And when you make this kind of intention, what you discover is that it's all the temple and that it's all our family. It's all your brothers and sisters. So my intention is to live as if this earth is a temple, is sacred ground. However many holy words you read, however many you speak, what good will they do you if you do not act upon them, says the Buddha. Are you the shepherd who counts another man's sheep never sharing the way? Read as few words as you like and speak fewer, but follow the wisdom of the heart and live from it. So the establishing of a deep intention of the heart and re reaffirming this again and again in the changing seasons of life. And then the invitation to stillness, to silence. Because no matter how caught up and chaotic and difficult our life becomes, there is a vast stillness that surrounds it and is always here for us and is wondrous. And it's like that blue-green globe in the huge expanse of the solar system and the galaxy and the many galaxies. In the midst of turmoil and conflict and chaos, if we can breathe and let our consciousness reopen again to the spaciousness of who we are, 
there comes in a moment of remembering, oh yeah, here we are, we're in the midst of conflict or difficulty, (sighs) and it's okay, it's all right. The need just to breathe in and out and take a vacation from the content of experience. Quiet the mind. And it comes through the establishment, through the training of mindfulness and awareness. We sit and we breathe, and the breath becomes the space of being, and the thoughts and feelings and praise and blame and gain and loss rise and fall like waves of the ocean around the breath. Or we sit and make space for the body, and you know this, you can come in off the highway or a busy day and sit here on Monday night or sit at home, and the body carries all the unfinished business of our life in it. It will shake and tremble and be hot and cold and different you know, images and emotions and so forth get released as, they're, as they come out of the body. And it's not a bad thing. It's like a reminder, oh yeah, the body too is a sacred ground and we can return to it and hold it and be respectful of attention. A kind of blessing that comes from the attention to our own body. Deep blessing. Breath, body, feelings. So many different feelings that come. Joys and sorrows. To be present for them, to allow a stillness to bow to them all, allow a stillness that is great enough to contain the joys and sorrows. And then your mind. You know that wonderful phrase I like from Annie Lamott where she says, my mind is like a bad neighborhood. I try not to go there alone, right? (laughs) So we come, you know, and sit together just to have company, right, in this. But what happens over time with practice, actually in a moment it can happen, is that we remember that there is a place of joy and well-being in the midst of it all. Live in joy, says the Buddha, in love, even among those who hate. Live in joy in health, even among the afflicted. Live in joy in peace, even among the troubled. Look within, be still, free from fear and attachment. Know the sweet joy of the way. So there's the setting of the intention of the heart to make this world a temple, the intention of compassion and loving kindness. There's the quieting of the mind, the reconnecting in mindfulness of breath, of body, feelings, thoughts. And then there's this amazing shift of identity, a remembering of who we really are. We get lost in all these dramas. It's like going into the movies, you know, and sometimes it's a comedy and sometimes it's a action movie, right, an adventure. Sometimes it's, um, well, all different kinds, right? Sometimes it's a tragedy. There you are, and then all of a sudden you remember, oh yeah, right, here I am sitting, here is the popcorn, right? <laughs> it's the movies. And somehow something gets bigger, yeah, there's the light coming on the screen and so forth. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh says, consciousness in the mind is like a television with a thousand channels. Um, And it would be really good if you could find the remote. (laughs) Because all the channels, you know, they play. I mean, you see, he's just sat for half an hour. I don't know what channel was on in your, you know, the Playboy channel, right? There it was, right? Or the sports channel, right? Or maybe it was, you know, the stock market, little tape at the bottom of your sitting giving you the day's market information and so forth. What channel will you choose? There comes a knowing, a shift from the small sense of self, what's called the body of fear, to something greater that opens. There was a man who came on retreat, oh, a year or two ago, I remember, whose um, one of his two children, his seven-year-old son, had died of a sudden illness a couple of years before he came on that retreat. 
And he just carried so much grief. He still had a lot of grief. It just, he said, it stopped his life in his tracks. He was a businessman and an athlete and all these things. It made him question everything. He said, and as he was weeping, and you know, as he looked back some years later, um, in the period, some months after this death of his son, he said, there was a moment in the midst of the worst pain when I didn't want to be alive anymore. And then it was as if I knew something deeper. I just knew that my son, who had died, wanted me to live, that he was in me. And he said, no, Dad, don't give up. You have to live, even if I couldn't. And then we talked further. And he used this amazing phrase at one point. He said, the gift from my son's death. He said, because I really feel like he's guiding me now, that he's become the elder, and I'm the one that listens. And I spend time with my daughter and with my other son, and I do my life in an entirely different way now, because I know what really matters. And for each of us, there is a call to remember who we really are, our Buddha nature, what really matters when we let go of the small sense of self, you know, the judgments and needs and all the things that we get caught in, there's a place of seeing with the eyes of wisdom. Here we are in this life. Ajahn Jamnian, my teacher who comes here every year to teach, talks about establishing mindfulness here between the uh, eyes and the eyebrow uh, uh, as the third eye, is the eye of wisdom, to see the play of gain and loss and pleasure and pain and joy and sorrow and rest in the one who knows, in the pure knowing. And in this stillness, the one who knows, knows that no matter what is happening, whatever the situation, it will change because everything will change. The one who knows rests in the spirit of beginner's mind. Or as Zen Master Suzuki Roshi says, When you realize the everlasting truth that everything changes and find your composure in it, there you find yourself in nirvana. The one who knows can say, ah, yes, this too. This too is part of life. Whatever you're given, this too is a part of it. Cease gain and loss and praise and blame and joy and sorrow are interwoven and that you can't separate them. As Sylvia Borstein wrote, she said, what a relief it was for me to go to my first Buddhist retreat and teaching and hear the Four Noble Truths about suffering. They were so sensible and straightforward. Yes, there's suffering in life, and not just because you've made a mistake or done it wrong. It's just part of how it is. And yet, the teachers who spoke about suffering could still laugh and they seemed genuinely happy. This is what I wanted to find out about. How do you do that? And the one who knows sees joy and sorrow. Yes, this is the way it is, praise and blame. We are given a certain measure of each. And the patterns that we live by are created by the seeds that we plant. Hatred never ceases by hatred. But by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. What seeds are we planting? The one who knows rests in an awareness, the unconditioned. The conditions of life change, sight, sound, smells, taste, feelings, and thoughts. These are the changing conditions. But the most amazing thing happens. I, I like to, t- to talk about it this way. If you go into the bathroom or go, you know, look in the mirror, the kind of unexpected experience that we have, or maybe it's expected, is you, you kind of look in, at certain moments, you say, well, I'm definitely looking older. You know, my body's changed. But the part that's interesting is that um, somehow the, the body looking older isn't really about you at all, is it? 
It's like the body's gotten older, but you don't feel older, do you? Really. Because the mind doesn't age. Consciousness is outside of time. And so, yes, our body is aging. It's what it does. It's just what bodies do. And the one who knows, the eyes of wisdom, the eye of the Buddha says, yes, this is the way things are. They're born, they exist for a time, they age, they change. Anybody not seen that? But we don't actually breathe and stop and listen and say, oh, this is the way life is, and I can live in this changing life with liberation and freedom and an open heart. Instead of resisting and fighting and being afraid of it, this is the way that it is. And I can act in this world and bring beautiful things to blossom in this world because I know know it the way that it is. A man who was on retreat talked about how many years he'd come on retreat at different times and sometimes things opened up for him and then sometimes they would close. And and one retreat he said, I just gave up trying to be or make or do or have any experience. I just let it be. And when I did, the struggle stopped. My heart became luminous and radiant. I sat effortlessly. Things were the way they were. And there came this deep joy. The truth of life was so clear, the way grasping is the cause of suffering, that by following the small sense of self, this false ego, we run around like the petty landlord squabbling over nothing. I wept at all the unnecessary sorrow my grasping and that of others has caused. But then I saw how the stream of life unfolds in patterns that we create as the flow of karma. I wept for those who don't understand this. And I saw the whole idea of spiritual renunciation as a kind of a joke, trying to make oneself let go of ordinary life and its pleasures. In fact, nirvana is so open and joyful, is so much more than any of the small pleasures we grasp after. You don't renounce the world, you gain the world. And in a moment, we know this. In a moment of walking along, you know, and looking up at the moon that's probably full tonight. It looked like tonight was going to be full moon or pretty close. And there's that kind of slightly frosty, hazy sky around it. And you just stop and say, wow, here we are on this earth. Or the eyes of your beloved. Or something you care about. A moment of grace doesn't have to be big or dramatic. Those who awaken, says the Buddha, move like a bird who rests on limitless air, flies an invisible course, wish for nothing, their food is wisdom, they live in emptiness, their hearts are free. I remember hearing the story, I didn't go to this meeting, but the, the Gorbachev um, forum meetings that have been held for some years in San Francisco, the first year, which I wasn't able to attend, um, had a number of the key players from the government at that time. It was probably about eight or nine years ago. And Mikhail Gorbachev was there along with um, George W. Bush. No, I mean George H.W. Bush, the, uh, George Bush Sr., and Margaret Thatcher, and George Schultz, and various people. And they had different spiritual teachers there. Ram Dass was there, and Thich Nhat Hanh, and so forth. Um, and it was time for Thich Nhat Hanh to teach. Um, and they'd given Thich Nhat Hanh the lunch period, which is, you know, it's kind of like the rubber chicken thing, right? Where you have to give teachings while everybody's eating and talking. So it's the worst time to do it. But of course, Thich Nhat Hanh, being the master that he was, rang the bell and said, everyone, please stop eating. <laughs> And then on the, on the tables were these bowls of fruit, and he had everybody pick up an orange. And he made them take 15 minutes to peel and eat an orange, you know. And um, uh, the way Ramdas put it, Ramdas said they didn't know what hit them, right? <laughs> Here they were, their conversations about Russia and, you know, empires and, you know, all the world things. And all of a sudden, Thich Nhat Hanh is saying, now hold the orange in your hands. Now bring it to your nose and smell it. Feel the rough texture of the orange, you know, begin to peel it one section at a time and so forth. Well, I remember what, what um, 
Richard Baker Roshi at San Francisco said about Thich Nhat Hanh when he first uh, came to teach here in San Francisco. He described him as a cross between a cloud, a snail, and a piece of heavy machinery, right? <laughs> and so here's the power lunch and the players of the world, and then Thich Nhat Hanh is saying, okay, now come back to the innocence of your childhood and open the mystery of one orange. So I don't mean by reading that account of somebody's retreat that nirvana is on retreat after you know so many days of sitting. Um, it's always here for us. Freedom is always here for you and for I. In any moment, the heart can be free. In any moment, the mystery shines because it's always shining. And it's so wonderful that it's true. And what we do when we come to the temple is just bow to one another and say, yes, yes, I remember. I remember and rest in the wisdom of the heart. Let's sit for a moment. A little question for you while you sit. What reminds you of mystery? What brings you back to the mystery? Or what nourishes your heart, the one who knows in you? walks in nature, music, stillness, meditation, the eyes of the beloved. Let yourself remember, reflect. And when you're in the throes of difficulties, the greatest problems, what returns you to the one who knows, to the great heart of a Buddha in yourself? Life is this simple, says Thomas Merton. We're living in a world that is absolutely transparent and the divine is shining through it all the time. This is not just a fable or a nice story. It is true. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.